Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. My version of success here is to build the most valuable data set in Web3. Hopefully, if we do our jobs right, it'll probably be just one of the most valuable data sets in the world, period. If we look at Google Street Views, this is an ecosystem, a platform where there's probably so many low-hanging fruit gems that can be extracted to build really great businesses to unlock new experiences to advance the human condition when it comes to computing. I fundamentally believe it has not been innovated even close to that first inning in terms of baseball. Well, I want to create that data set, generate the metaverse maps of the world from it, and then I want to be able to push them into different use cases that just make new things possible. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and we lived in the transition between Web 2 and Web 3. How do decentralized worlds and digital real estate look like in the metaverse? With me today, Alex Chung, CEO of Reality Platforms, to provide an understanding on how to make this evolution happen. Full disclosure, I led a syndicate of investors to invest in the recent round of Reality Platforms, but to an ex-colleague and old friend, Alex, welcome to the Analyze Asia podcast. Bernard, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun, you know, getting to know each other over the years, starting from AWS to all our adventures after. And, and to get to this point has really come full circle. Really excited to be here and, and look forward to a really productive and intellectually stimulating discussion. And you're based in the Silicon Valley at the moment, right? That's right. So I'm in Palo Alto. My team and I spent our time between Seattle and California, and we have been going all over just in the early stages of building our product. As first-time guests on the show, we always like to dive deep into your origin story. How did you start your career? Yeah, thank you for asking. I'm one of those Silicon Valley kids that actually grew up in the area. I knew Facebook's campus before it was Facebook. It was Sun Microsystems back in the day. And the sign on the back of the Facebook thumbs up, now it's the meta icon, still has that really old graphic. And... I went to one of those ultra-competitive, uh, predominantly Asian-American high schools. And then after that, went to the East Coast, went to one of those overly pretentious East Coast Ivy League schools, graduated early, and then I started my first startup. It was a quantitative hedge fund focused on emerging market debt. We took algorithms, classical machine learning algorithms, and applied it on emerging market bonds financial data set. I raised some money from you know, ultra high net worth investors, basically million dollar size checks, pulled it all together, and then started deploying those funds around the world using this algorithm. And that's really how I got my start. The hustle and bustle and all those characteristics of the CEO, I really learned from my first company. And then a few years after, I moved to the, the traditional tech field here in Silicon Valley. And of course, in your career journey, you joined Facebook and Amazon Web Services, and that's where we met. What are the key experiences that you have learned from working in these high-tech growth companies? I think the area that I 
was a product manager in for both these companies is very interesting. AI and ML, computer vision in particular, at AWS, it was the AI platform SageMaker. This is an era that we call deep tech. It's different from many traditional tech jobs where you might be moving pixels, shipping a new feature. Oftentimes, it requires a heavy CS degree and also a very deep and intimate business knowledge to really make a product come from an idea to a successful launch. And I think I've really come to experience really that product muscle as it comes to launching typically features that are really catered to other developers and building new tools and platforms that help accelerate productivity. These experiences span from you know building research tools for computer vision, like for Instagram, all the way down to open source connectors for AWS services into tools like Kubernetes. Very, very esoteric, honestly, kind of boring stuff, but it's gotten me going because it's just some of the most fascinating and billions of dollars worth of GPUs, CPUs, and software engineering spent goes into these specific areas today. Mm. And also you dealt with customers and actually that's how you met as well, right? And yeah. you talked to people from all over the world as well. Yeah, I don't think we can say the names of that, but you know, you and I have done many early morning, late night calls with well-known Fortune 500 companies. And it just baffles me how many of them look to folks like us who are not that much smarter than them, but just simply a little bit more studied in this area and field and you know, bringing it all together and synthesizing it is really an art, not so much a science still. Mm. And, and, and given that background from quantitative finance to being a product manager, I guess in your career journey, what are the interesting lessons that you can share with my audience? As business owners and managers who are hiring individuals or as entrepreneurs or even you know middle managers thinking about growing teams or cultivating their own careers, I would encourage everyone to appreciate the process. There are many you know short, pithy sayings that I can share that is wise from different parts of my career, from different projects. But I think the more I've thought about my progression, what I've worked on, I want to always remind myself of how to learn. If there's always new things coming about, always new technologies to need to apply into a business, the process from which I approach a problem is far more important than the problem itself. And learning how to, one, not stress over the journey when you first get overwhelmed because you first see that problem and you just don't know where to start to then starting to you know sink your teeth in, find your first few places to really latch into and then grow some roots into a subject space. And then over time, meriting, rinse and repeat, and then becoming that subject matter expert. That process is one that never gets easier if you're working on hard enough challenges. But at the same time, it's always very rewarding at the very end. So trying to remind myself, it's really that journey that is almost as important as the results. That comes to the main subject of the day, which is we want to talk about reality platforms and decentralized mapping in the metaverse. I want to start with a little bit on what reality platforms is really about, but maybe the easiest way to get around the subject is what are you building exactly? We're creating a 3D photorealistic version of the real world. We call it in the metaverse, but what we're really creating is a model of the world that's represented by real colors of a 3D space. So if you imagine when a autonomous vehicle drives around Singapore, drives around San Francisco, it's mapping, it's collecting imagery, it's collecting LIDAR. 
Well, what's changed over the last couple of years is you don't really need these laser points as much anymore. Different technologies like neural radiance fields from modern smartphone cameras allows you to actually generate very realistic looking versions of the real world. And we've shown many versions of this to our community already. This 3D model of the real world decentrally collected by everyday users like you and me, my mom, my girlfriend are all able to use their modern smartphone device, take a camera in a circular motion, and we process that on our network to then become a model that is organically growing to be a version of this real world. We call it a 3D metaverse map. Mm. And then if I were to take this a little bit further, then what is the problem that reality platforms is exactly solving? And what makes it better than what it is already out there? Because there are companies that have already done this kind of 3D mapping across the world. And I think they have pretty much a substantial database of the street views around the world. That's an interesting question. I think there's various ways to look at it. I think the first is let's start with what has been collected already. So Google Street Views, that is basically the monopoly player when it comes to real world ground truth. If you look at their business model, majority of these Street View imagery is really just used to build the Google Maps database. It is a proprietary use case. And while they allow companies like Zillow or Redfin, so these real estate brokerage firms, to use the imagery as part of their applications, that's really just a drop in the bucket in terms of the revenue for these businesses. No one comes close. Apple has tried in recent years, and you know they've gone substantial progress. Microsoft, so Bing. Facebook has a few plays in this, but once again, none of them come close to Google. And the problem that we're really trying to tackle here is this ground truth of the real world. Google really is the only one that has this at phenomenal scale with true 3D, high fidelity HD maps. You have other companies like autonomous vehicle companies that map it as part of their core base, the data set that they're curating for training their models. However, that's not scalable. And to create a new version of this that is fully encompassing the urban world is a monumental challenge. Google literally has spent tens of billions of dollars. But if we can unlock this, and we think we can by applying one, decentralization, two, the rapid acceleration of smartphone camera quality, and then three, just development in computer vision, you really have a recipe where you can take that $10 billion number plus, and you probably drop it down to the tens to hundreds of millions in terms of growing that user base and really having people all over the world collect this imagery. And what differentiates us is we're going to allow anyone who participates in our network to own a piece of that. The ground truth of the world is a very important asset that has a variety of applications. Very few companies have ownership of that data. And almost none besides Google has that at true scale. I think the key thing here is the acquisition of the data. I, I guess in the decentralized, there's a different way of data as well. But I think maybe if I were to take it another in a higher level, what would be the use cases that reality platforms seek to do for the users? That's one. And second, who are the customers that you're actually targeting to use the data that they have collected in this case? Right. So in our mind, we've kind of created three buckets. As you've seen from me over the years, I'm very much like a deep tech guy, which means 
I start my type of hypotheses always with original research. So in the world of computer vision and even in geospatial mapping, a lot of this comes from original research that's done in academic settings. Actually, National University of Singapore and U.S. has a geospatial lab that's actually backed by uh, the local governments there. Grab, you know, Goto in Indonesia has also been doing a lot of work here. But also major research universities all over the world have a lot of um, papers in this arena. And the enterprise geospatial analytics is the one that I think is going to be the best stable recurring revenue and also most untapped portion of the market here. Really because Google has never tried they have offered very limited access to their Street View imagery APIs. And that means that they are in intentionally prohibiting growth of the industry in hopes that they can centralize a lot of that economic value within their own platform. And I think that ties in very closely with the other piece, which is you know, augmenting existing maps. TomTom, Here Maps, they spend hundreds of millions, and in various cases, when you combine with other major customers, billions of dollars a year, acquiring raw data of the real world to augment their maps, their, their routes, their roads, their points of interest locations. And I think really this these two pieces lead up to our North Star, which is really to start building new virtual worlds that are based off of reality. Today, if you play Grand Theft Auto, you go do LA. That's all done by artists. And while that's awesome and very cool, it's not up to date. It's hard to scale. If you're a GTA player in Singapore, wouldn't it be great if you could play, you know, Bandung in Indonesia, because that's where your parents are from originally? Or, you know, you could play in your various neighborhood of wherever you are in the world. That's an experience not available today. And I think that has a potential to unlock a whole set of new experiences. If I can double click into one of the use cases you are talking about, for example, you mentioned the enterprise geospatial analytics. Specifically, what are the things that you, you think that people could gain, could benefit from understanding more from the data they collect in the situation? Let's start with one that's actually very recent and you know, maybe a little less topical now, but COVID spread. So it's been well known that in at least in the United States, we've been able to track down to the county level. So we have the country, we have the state, and then you have the county, which are larger than cities, but municipal districts that are used for record keeping and have their own health authority. Well, it's much harder to get much granular than that. You know, wouldn't it be great if you could have actual like street level predictions of where COVID spread is? And that's how you would be able to target your resources. Well, there was actually a number of papers done that correlated street view imagery with various external statistics on COVID spread. And they would identify essentially a heat map of a neighborhood of where COVID were likely to spread. And I believe they actually had various ground truth that they cross-referenced that to that actually backed up their results. That's a very interesting application, but you can imagine how there's very similar types of downstream applications for that. Things like insurance underwriting could get far more granular if you had that level of fidelity data by having a cost-effective street view imagery that you can then correlate to the rest of your data set in your business. There's also interesting things like architectural planning. You can actually look at street view imagery to analyze the light reflection to figure out what's the optimal placement of windows to, to streamline your heating in a building just based on different captures during different times of the day. 
if street view imagery were available at a cost-effective rate and at scale of both road mileage or kilometers for you know our friends outside the United States, and also recency, it's not enough to just have imagery from two years ago. We need something monthly, quarterly, in a regular refresh cycle. That actually could open up a whole new set of use cases. And I'm really excited about thinking about which type of customers that we really want to target on our get-go. And you know, these are really the verticals that we view the, this business line from today. Hmm. How did this concept of decentralized 3D metaverse map of planet Earth come about? And how does it link to the conversation on metaverse today? Yeah, so you know, you briefly mentioned that I used to work at Facebook. We now call it Meta, I suppose. And at Meta, I was in a very specific team. I was embedded with the Oculus group. And I also was liaisoned with the Applied Machine Learning Group for computer vision. So literally, if you have ever used Instagram camera effects and filters, like the dog-faced ears, or you ever done things like use an Oculus headset and you try to run into a wall, it'll tell you. Well, there's also a lot of other researchy things that we explored before as well. And one of them that I remember very distinctly is we tried doing a reconstruction of the real world using satellite imagery data. This is a very well-known technique now, nothing's too, you know, hush-hush about this now. But what fascinated me was the challenge that we faced was not the computer vision itself, it was not the technology, it was the fundamental cost of data acquisition. And keep in mind, I worked at Meta in its heyday. My group area's budget literally is VC funding rounds for some of the biggest companies in the world. That was my group's budget every single year. And we still could not collect enough data. But if you decentralize it, you know, you throw in a little bit of the Web3 aspect, you throw in a fundamental core technology that actually makes sense, and you tie it together, this actually could unlock a very challenging problem of real-world ground truth and the 3D imagery on a global scale. That's what excites me about what we're building here. And the link to the metaverse here really is the idea of our reality blocks. So we've subdivided the entire world into these hexagons. It's 25 meters on the edge, 50 meters on the diagonal. And these units of our geography can be owned by our contributors. And our contributors that are part of our community that own it essentially will get a piece of the revenue royalty as we monetize our ecosystem. And that can be tied into games, can be tied into various customer businesses. And you know, this element is what excited a lot of our early users and how we've been able to just collect so many so quickly already today. Then how does this eventually tie into the digital real estate piece then? I, I think you know, that term has been thrown around a lot. It might be helpful just to start with the definition or at least how we see the definition of digital real estate. And the real estate in the real world is you own a piece of land. You own the deed to the property, depending on where you are in the world. Oftentimes it is a you know persistent ownership. In certain parts of the world, you get a like a, a century-long lease to that piece of land or apartment. And in the digital world, it's not all too different. There is land created in various communities in virtual worlds, and essentially that plot is assignable to individual users. They might be investors, they may be players in the game, and that assignment process attributes an ownership that hopefully is bounded by a persisted law. So a law being either something that is encoded into a blockchain network 
or written down that is a actual legal contract of sorts between the party and the company that controls it. The way that we view digital real estate is a slight twist of that. Today, digital real estate really is the buying and selling of that. You know, if, if you're lucky, you might be able to sell that and also collect rent before you sell that piece of real estate. And how we really see digital real estate is more of an asset class that is tied to the data that is there. Digital real estate really being a digital representation of that real world. So if you plot a land of downtown San Francisco, let's say a ferry building, if you own that hexagon, what you actually own is that imagery there. And you can license that imagery to AV companies who want to see the most recent scan of that neighborhood. Or you can license it to a game so that they can offer it to their users. So that their users can offer a beautiful experience of running around downtown San Francisco. You get a piece of the action for being the owner of that digital real estate. And essentially, if you collect the imagery in the real world, you can earn the digital real estate in our ecosystem. So... One interesting thing is, is actually the market opportunity of this entire mapping space. Can you talk about the current mapping systems on our planet Earth now? And then how? what are the layers in the mapping industry? How are they organized? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I think this is where really the traditional Web2 world has done a successful job of building this ecosystem and where I think there's an opportunity to augment their offerings and just offer another fidelity of scale. So... You know, today, there's many ways that people experience maps. It might be in your car. You probably have an outdated map unless you know, if you drive some of those Mercedes. But if you own a Tesla, you get real-time map updates because they have you know, over-the-air downloads. And the, this data is all organized from a, a pretty much three major players. And these three major players are major purchasers of data. They're also major aggregators uh, of their, uh, the, the data across both their internal channels and the data that they purchase. And there's been a essentially kind of like a formation of different niches across this space. So I could break it down to three categories. You have the data layer, you have the mapping layer, you have the application layer. And these are the three spaces that are actually very critical. So the data layer really is like the raw information, streets, vectors of GPS coordinates, address locations of specific points of interest. And then also things like where are the business hours of a location? All this is raw data that has really nothing to do with maps besides the fact that it, when it comes together, forms a map. The second piece is the mapping layer. So example is companies like Uber, like Goto in Indonesia, build large engines that process all this raw data and organize it into a routing system. Organize it so that when a driver is pointed to Y location, Will they make it in time? What's the traffic? You know, what are the potential best turns based on historical data? You know, which roads are closures because of construction? And it actually creates the end-to-end -end experience. You know, you can also think of things like, you know, typing in your address in Google Maps and being able to move exactly to that specific location. Your home address isn't actually a point on a map. It's a digitized version of a coordinate system that is actually being encoded behind the scenes. And then finally, you have the application layer. It's things like that final end product of that end-to-end -end navigation. It's also things like, for instance, the experience as a driver where you are seeing your location where you are in the world. You can pan around. 
you can then also like click around like what are the different restaurants nearby you. You can see like where that restaurant is in a 3D view relative to where you are right now. That's the final piece of it. And the mapping engine can be universal for a lot of different applications, but that end application is really how you and I interact with this whole maps. These three different elements drive billions and billions of dollars of commerce around the world. And it's phenomenal how much is ignored but how ripe for disruption that this really is and how we can play a role. Mm. And given that we have more and more smartphone penetration, you can think of even trying to get the maps of pretty remote areas as well out there, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I have to give credit to companies like Grab out of Southeast Asia where they're trying to really innovate in the space. It's, I think it's an open question of is Grab really able to generate you know, their maps at scale in these remote regions, but it's clearly a, a problem born out of their own need. You know, Grab is in various countries in Southeast Asia, and the need to just have high quality maps is just so important for their bottom lines of their drivers and also their core business. Mm. And then I come back to reality platforms. I guess, what is the mission and vision for reality platforms in your point of view now? Yeah, we're, we're starting today with this 3D metaverse map of the world, but what I hope to see us build over time is decentralization of real world infrastructure. I'm gonna leave this vague and ambiguous because I think it's gonna shape in many different twists and turns. You're seeing different versions of this by different companies in the Web3 space. And I think it's still very early of what it looks like. And, and to really say that we have a good idea would just be a little arrogant of me to say, but what I can tell you for sure is this maps piece of the real world and offering a photorealistic version of it. This is barely just possible in the Web2 world because you don't have enough data at scale. If we can get the real world imagery, that infrastructure is what I like to think about as, I think Web3 is actually one of the few tools that can actually accelerate traditionally barrier Web2 business in a way that is not even really truly understood today. So what is the blockchain protocol that you're currently building on? And I guess because in the Web3 application where you will usually deal with one chain and then subsequently rinse and repeat to the other chains. Mm -hmm. And then my other question that will come up is what's the thinking behind the selection of chain, the blockchains itself? Yeah, I, I, as we've studied chains, especially over the last, let's call it nine months, because so much has happened in 2022, I think the version of the chain that we need of, of any you know, decentralized network probably isn't really truly there yet. You know, the concept of NFTs, a single unit of a tradable asset. If we look at the world and our reality blocks, there literally are billions of hexagons that we need to put onto a blockchain network at some point in the future. And I am not confident, based on our own engineering tests so far, that this is truly doable today. We've seen in different economic cycles, Ethereum, as an interesting, clever use case becomes popular, their gas fees just go through the roof. And then you need things like rollups or other tools to mitigate those fees. And it's of our opinion as a team that no chain truly is fully ready for our application today. So uh, we've taken more of a hybrid approach and we continue to evaluate chains in preparation for our upcoming token launch in the future. Mm. And maybe just dive a little bit in terms of the selection of the ch chain conversation, right? What 
instead of just talking about the specific chains itself, maybe I, I would ask a more generic question. What features must the chain have in order for the ideal use case to happen? So in, is it mainly be, is this transaction per second has to reach a certain scale so that you can actually allow all your hexagon tailors to actually collate? And I, I guess now there's not just innovation, there are new alternative L1 chains coming out every day. And this week we already have apples and then that and then there's also the L2 chains, for example, which will take Ethereum to the next level. And obviously other L1 chains are still on the rise. So where do you see where what type of features would be very important from that point of view? I think as a builder right now, we're looking at the the typical framework that is already well discussed in the industry. It's decentralization versus semi-centralization. It is security versus ease of use. And then it's also scalability. But when I look at scalability, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to use transactions per second, because if you can bunch up a number of different executions into one transaction, that is still able to scale for a use case. The challenge of what you see with tools like Solana is when you have your transactions, you have very limited compute in terms of your rent that you're able to use and put onto the network. And the gas fees that it goes towards is ultimately quite limited in terms of an application like ours. You have other tools like Ethereum where you have the EVM where you can squeeze a little bit more. The ultimate you know, end-to-end workflow still is a little bit challenging. And then you have the different EVM compatible networks that you need to then go figure out which to build upon. I think for builders like us, if there are builders on the call or you know, other companies looking at various Web3 tools to augment, I would be curious to see what are the abstraction layers that get built in the next, let's call it 24 to 36 months. You know, Bernard, when you and I were selling our machine learning platform to enterprise customers, what they always love to hear is open source. I love Kubernetes. I love Kubeflow pipelines. Why? Because I can go hybrid cloud. I can run on-premise. I can run on AWS. I can run on GCP or Azure. What they're really saying is they want to build something once and they want it to run anywhere. As an application builder, I don't actually care where it runs. As long as it runs cost-effectively, securely, and all those other things I just described to you. So I would suspect that there are likely going to be abstraction layers that I essentially write my APIs or my interconnection with the Web3 networks to, and that acts as a middleman to the actual chains over time. We haven't seen it yet, but my guess is it'll come at some point in the future. That's my view, at least. So we come back to your app, right? So how do a user now get access to reality platforms or through your product services and start their journey to map the areas around that? Yeah, I, I really encourage people to take a look at our app. You can download it. So go to our website, www.realityplatforms.org. And then we have the iOS and Android download links really on the top of the page. When you download the app, you basically are brought into our core experience of the map of the world. You'll see these hexagons wherever you are in the world. And then from there, you can mine the current location. You go outside during daylight hours, and then you take a photo in a circle. And then once you get back on Wi-Fi or if you're 5G or LTE, you can just upload that onto our network. And then we process the computer vision on our side to start generating that map of the world. That's as simple as it is. Download an app, use your smartphone that you have today, and you start taking photos. No specialized hardware, 
no upfront costs. It is accessible to my grandmother as much as it is to a niece or nephew. I want to circle back to the digital ownership question. Can you elaborate more about the digital ownership aspects for Reality Blocks? I guess, how does the platform bring incentives for people to take photos, to get credits, and how miners could spend that credit to own that digital real estate? I mean, not, not specifically to where the app is, but just a mental framework in thinking about the digital ownership aspects of the of, of the application itself. Absolutely. To rewind a bit, we talked before about digital real estate, meaning more of the imagery, the data, real estate being the tangible asset of what is actually there in that hexagon of the capture. And what we then create an economic model around is how to monetize that. Basically generating these 3D metaverse maps that's only possible because someone took a photo in that location. And because they did that work, we're rewarding them with ownership of that location. When we monetize that data in that specific location, whether it be the ferry building, whether it be Chinatown in Singapore, or whether it be Clark Way in the restaurant district, the person that takes the photo in that spot that then owns that reality block gets a significant cut of the action when we make money from customers using this. This could be the enterprise analytics customers. This could be you know, a mapping company, like whether it be a ride-sharing company or others that use our data, or it could be the games or these virtual worlds. And we have some cool ideas of how we think games can be built as well based off of our data set. When it's accessed, it's almost like software as a service, except in this case, it's real world as a service. The, the imagery, once again, providing economic value to the owners. So given that's the case, right, how many people do you really need to map an entire region? I mean, let's cut Singapore aside, maybe the rest of the world. Think about Kyoto in Japan. Think about Seoul in Korea. Think about, you know, even London, the city of London as well. Yeah, this is one of the first questions I asked myself, like, is this even possible? And what we found is it's actually not as hard as you think. You know, many of our the investors that we talked to just did not believe us until I started showing them this tool that we built. We basically have this tool that we can draw a polygon over any city, anywhere around the world. It calculates the number of reality blocks there are and the number of accessible reality blocks. You know, we don't care about people's backyards. We don't care about the water. We don't care about like certain spaces that basically you should not be going into. And for example, San Francisco, we found there's about 33,000 accessible reality blocks. At 33,000 accessible reality blocks, quick back of hand math, that's about less than 100 people reality mining for one weekend. Less than 100 people playing, whether it be our core experience of just mining, earning rewards, or different games that we have explored, built off of our idea of like mining the real world. And just playing this for basically one weekend, two days, you know, daylight hours, you can have all of San Francisco mapped. Think about how much effort that would take if it was done by a vehicle that someone has to go drive around to go collect all of that street view imagery. This is a type of scale that I think with the right incentives, the right marketing, and also the right experiences, we could really offer something novel here that scales. Mm. 
So there's been a number of Web3 play-to-earn companies that have done well initially, but also fizzled significantly over time. I guess the, the question I always like to ask, why do you think this time is different? Well, let's break down like what is that play-to-earn company model and how does that, why can that be interpreted as similar to ours? So play-to-earn really is this idea that you do a unit of work and you are then given a token upfront for that effort. And typically in order to even get access to the ecosystem, you have to put an upfront cost of capital through typically through buying an NFT. Um, at the market height, it was a couple thousand dollars to get in. And then when you spend that couple thousand dollars, what that's actually doing is it's subsidizing all the people that were part of the network before you in terms of reducing supply of that reward token. The challenge of that is it requires more and more users and that needs to scale exponentially over time. It's not that different from the retail investor market with some of these stocks like AMC, Reddit, Wall Street Bets community. You just need more and more people to pile in in order for this whole ecosystem to really go to the moon. However, when fundamentals kick back in, it just comes back to reality. Fundamentals in the fullness of time is what matters. Like what Warren Buffett used to say, in the short term, markets are voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine of what actually matters. And the way that we are building this as a business is we want to create the economic rewards so that the ecosystem can give rewards based off of funding from purchase of a token from customers. So what that means is we are not going to be charging people upfront to get access to our ecosystem. We do not require specialized hardware, like a special camera. We just use your smartphone that you already have today. And we don't ask you to pay anything upfront to own an NFT. You just download our app and start collecting. And then you earn these credits that you can then trade in for a reality block, this unit of ownership. How much ownership you have in our map is tied directly to how much time and effort that you've put in to our platform. And from that, as customers start using the data, and we hope to start launching some of these use cases soon, you will start receiving the rewards there. And there'll also be other ways of accessing these ownership for gaming use cases as well. And we hope to have more announcements on this in the near future. Mm. The important questions of building decentralized mapping is also to allow applications to prosper on top of that layer, right? So how can developers build on reality platforms as of when this becomes available then? Yeah, so just to be clear, we don't have an API available to developers yet. We're still focused right now on growing our network, our data assets, and we're regularly investing in our computer vision. For those that are just curious of what these metaverse maps look like, please join our Discord. We, have, we regularly show a number of different previews. They look really cool and it's just, you know, refreshing to see how this is not science fiction anymore. We can do this as a small team of engineers that come from many of the great companies that have brought futurist experiences today. In the future, developers will have various ways to access our API. So one, we're planning a Google Street View compatible API service. So that means if you already use Google Street View today as part of your application, you can switch just one API call to connect to our servers instead of Google's, and you'll receive access to our imagery as a replacement for Google's. Second, we're planning access to our 3D metaverse map, the core data under the hood. 
And that's something that you can expect from something like an Unreal Engine API. If you're building 3D models, 3D games, you know, playing something in Blender, we're going to be offering a way to export our data in a licensed manner to tools that you can then augment to building games, building virtual worlds for exploration, and really just allowing anyone to be as creative as they want in terms of science fiction, what you might expect from futuristic movies to actually be reality. And once again, I hope to have more announcements in this over the next you know, year or so. Okay, I will look forward to that. I, I want to switch out the conversation from reality platforms into the metaverse. And I, I think it's, it's good because you're building on it and I'm sure you're interacting with a lot of people who are also working in the same space as well. I think my first question is based on the hype going on with the metaverse currently, what are the interesting trends that are now taking us from the physical our physical world into the digital realm? You know, when I think about reality platforms and think about, you know, the people mapping the world, it reminded me of a Japanese anime, which I'm a fan of, which is Sword Art Online. There's the VR universe and they also did the AR universe as a movie. So I just wanted to get your sense where it is all going currently in terms of with the metaverse? Yeah, I would say, you know, from my experience in machine learning and just, you know, studying different fields and industries in a space as wild, wild west as AR, VR and the metaverse, it's actually one constraint on the technology, not so much the business. You know, in things like FinTech, as an example, you're constrained on regulation, you know, what's allowed by regulators and also you know, existing financial infrastructure versus here in you know, our domain or in even AI, it's, you're limited only based on what you can build. And it's often that, you know, the intellectual capacity that constrains innovation here. And as I look into this field right now, it's become one where the early exploration to this feels very elementary. So I think you have different services like Pokemon Go, Pikmin Bloom, where you can get a little bit of the real world aspect. You go outside, you get some digital world brought to you of like your Pikmin or various Pokemon that you can go play around with. You have the Pokestops. You know, that's all cool, fun, dandy. I think we're about to see another wave of innovation here. You know, Apple's very rumored to launch their new Reality Pro headset next year. Oculus is the latest headset this month. But the price points of this really are accessible for an everyday user. I think what we're going to really see is developers, professionals or really the affluent users with a limited set of use cases really start tinkering around with this. Looking beyond that, I have to assume that the multiverse, kind of like what you alluded to from the anime, is a really interesting concept. When I say multiverse, I'm, I'm bringing the idea from Marvel, the Disney Marvel Cinematic Universe, where you have that same region, that same location in many different worlds with different storylines, different occurrences, and things that are occurring in many different patterns um, rather than you know just one world that you might think of the real world today. If you have AR, just imagine walking into a mall. If you look at that mall with the real world, it's shops, it's you know Uniqlo, you have different stores. But what if you put on your headset, sit down at the bench and just look around? That might not be a mall, that might be a museum. That might be a dance party. It might be a club. It could also just be a whole forest, a whole or a whole other fictional world that's completely unknown. I think when you have a data set like ours available to VR users and you have headsets available to AR users, you have a really interesting crossplay that you can have here where 
you have this real world and digital world intersection in a way that's only just imaginable today. I had this recent conversation with Jessica Liu from AdWords Ventures, and we have, I think she's probably one of the few people who agree with me that you cannot slap a Web 2 paradigm into a Web 3 world to onboard the next billion users. I guess given that the Web 3 industry is still at its infancy, what is the mental model in bringing the billion users into the space? Which is, I think, everybody's question now, if with all the deals that I've been seeing in the market as well. For everyone else listening, just for context, Jessica is one of our investors in reality platforms as well in our seed round. You know, they've been phenomenal partners and, you know, we look forward to continued collaboration with everyone in, in that AppWorks community. They've done a phenomenal job just really building an institutionalized fund from the ground up. And they're based in a part of the world where not as well known for venture capital. I think the question of tokenization is actually one that people in the Web3 space probably don't quite fully understand we have a lot of tokens for protocols and ecosystems, you know, you know, Mango from Mango Markets that recently got hacked to Solana, which is an L1 protocol, to gaming tokens like Axie. And I'm more of a traditional person when it comes to looking at Web3 adoption. And I think contrary to maybe what others fully believe, while Web2 to Web3, you know, take adding Web3 to Web2 model is probably not the best phrasing, history may not look exactly the same, but it often rhymes as the saying goes. And I think we see developments like CBDCs, so central bank digital currencies, China doing a lot of work right there, but now Europe and you know in the even earlier stage, United States starting to develop. You have other countries that have already started this, but no one really at scale yet besides China. And these central bank digital currencies, I think will be very interesting in terms of basically putting in a decentralized ethos to the existing financial institutions and I think you were just going to get more and more competency from those banks, those financial services companies to this whole Web3 world over time. And I think another area is also like tokenization of asset classes and securities. So FTX has been doing some interesting things around basically being able to trade Tesla 24-7, Tesla stock through the FTX markets in specific countries that allow trading of their tokenized version of Tesla shares. I think there's some, going to be some very interesting versions of all that. Because you need this to unlock institutional grade investors at scale. Delphi, Digital, you know, all of those unchained, those crypto VC funds, they're institutions, but all the money that they have together is really just only billions at the height, tens of billions of dollars of total AUM, assets under management. Literally, the pension plan, sorry, not the pension, the endowment of Stanford is what, 50 billion at its market height sometime last year? The entire crypto market in terms of like held by traditional VC funds can be encapsulated by one university. That's not exactly a very large and diversified ecosystem. I think it really takes this maturing of the market and bringing in some of those web two traditional finance companies into a decentralized finance world, which may not be truly called web three to really actually unlock the development behind web three because that Decentralized first thinking is, I think, the piece that I want to look to see. And that could really unlock a lot of institutional capital in the domain. I think the things that people do not appreciate is that I think in the Web3, when we think about whether it's applications, every decentralized application is actually unlocking an embedded capital market within the moment it comes online. I, I just only have one question before we go to the closing question. I guess 
given you have done the fundraising, you have gone through the market and you are, you are now in the midst of building in a very interesting time, how would you advise founders in terms of thinking about valuation in Web3? Or, I mean, I usually ask the VCs this question, should you, know, should you want to take equity token or a mixture of both? Recently, I was explaining to a couple of people, you know, every VC seems to want equity now, they don't want token. But I think <laughs> yes. that's from the VC perspective, right? But I want to now hear the founder perspective. How would you think about it? As an investor myself, uh, I see myself more as a macro investor. I completely understand why there was that switch from VCs. So for those who may not necessarily follow the deduction there, when central banks are basically printing money and setting interest rates at zero, all asset classes were going up, which means all you need to do was ride beta. Beta meaning, you know, your correlation to the market direction. If you have a high beta, you know, like crypto, you just throw some money in. As long as your valuation was low, once it launches, if there's some reasonable degree of market hype, it goes to the moon. And then you find your exit opportunity. And now we're switching to alpha. Alpha means stock selection, you know, picking the right companies, understanding cash flows, fundamentals, real metrics. From the business owner, the CEO lens myself, what this has all translated to has been a reinforcement of what I think my co-founder and I have known from the beginning, which is at some point, fundamentals matter. Can we generate a real cash flow business? Or can we generate a piece of IP or data sets or collectively our metaverse maps, a usable property that someone wants to pay money for in the future? We might be an acquisition target. We might be a great vendor for game companies to offer real world versions of maps. Whatever that may be, there needs to be real fundamentals there. And how that translates in terms of selling equity or token or both, I would encourage founders to think about what gives you the time to execute. Valuations are down quite a bit relative to the market height just six months ago. And what this means is you're gonna want investors who are long-term thinking. I wanna be candid in terms of my fundraise experience and say a lot of the investors I met do not have long-term thinking, which is why most of the investors that we spoke with actually just wanted token because they cared about that beta, their beta funds. And I'm willing to bet that many of them will not be around in two, three years time as central banks, at least in the United States, hits four point something percent, maybe even 5% Federal Reserve funds rates and you know equivalents all over the world. That is a very different regime. And it means if you're a builder, one, you better be confident you know what you're doing. Two, you better be sure that the partners that you have in terms of your investors believe in you and are willing to take a long-term perspective. I think on our side, we had that as much as possible, a long-term perspective when selecting investors. And we turned down many groups. You know, Bernard, you and I have known each other a lot longer than you and I have both been in Web3. And same for many of our other investors. They were all referrals of other people that we knew in order to get that introduction. And we really appreciate those type of warm connections because it gives us confidence that these people are going to be our partners and willing to answer our phone calls when we need our help in the future. So my final question, what does great look like for reality platforms? My version of success here is to build the most valuable data set in Web3. Hopefully if we do our jobs right, it'll probably be just one of the most valuable data sets in the world period. When we look at Google Street View, this is an ecosystem, a platform where there's probably so many low hang fruit gems that can be extracted to build really great businesses, 
to unlock new experiences to advance the human condition when it comes to computing. I fundamentally believe it has not been innovated even close to that first inning in terms of like baseball. I want to create that data set. I want to then generate the metaverse maps of the world from it. And then I want to be able to push them into different use cases that just make new things possible. When I always talk about what excites me about this with my friends and family, and I always say the line of, nowadays there's billions and billions of smartphones. I have to imagine in five to 10 years, there's probably gonna be as many AR, VR devices as there are smartphones today. And for those people that have this AR, VR device, I'm gonna imagine that many of them are gonna wanna explore downtown San Francisco, or downtown LA, the arts district, or Brooklyn in New York, but don't have the economic means to. People still want to explore it, and they'd love to do it with their friends. Right now, to make that experience possible, only one company can really truly offer that, but they've barely scratched the surface. I think we can do better, and I hope that your listeners will consider joining us in that journey to become a miner, a contributor, and then an owner in our ecosystem as well. Alex, many thanks for coming on the show. And I think that's a vision that I think we can all work on. And presumably, I'll probably be still going around doing yeah. my mapping today in the morning as well. But in closing, I have two quick questions. The first one, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Our company is remote first. And that brings interesting challenges for those who have spent most of their careers in office and in the person. I've recently been reading a book called Digital Body Language by Erica Darwan. Darwan, excuse me if she's listening to this and here's how I butchered her last name. She's a you know well-known speaker of remote work and she really brings out a framework through which people can learn about how to collaborate with one another and how to just change your communication patterns because what has worked in the real world doesn't quite work in an all remote setting. And I think, I've seen friction in my own team as we've done remote work, and I've had to like come back to the basics to try and like rethink how I communicate over Discord, over Slack, you know, over messages and over emails. I really to make sure that we create an environment where people feel safe and also at the same time encouraged to do their best work. Mm. And how can my audience find you? I am very accessible over our community's Discord. If you want to join Reality Platform's Discord, just go to our website. It's the top link on our uh, nav bar up on top. If you want to follow me on Twitter as well, it's A-L-X Chung, C-H-U-N-G, A-L-X Chung, no E in Alex because it was taken. And I post, repost from time to time, but really I encourage people to have direct conversation with me. When I was at AWS, I, I loved speaking with my customers. It's really how I learned about different perspectives. And even with our users, I spent so much time talking to our early users in our private beta and now public beta, just because they come from such different walks of life. And I hope that, you know, in this world that we're now evolving to, despite all the geopolitical friction, despite all the different things that can separate us, that through interesting technologies, through, you know, podcasts and intellectually stimulating ideas, like the ones that you've talked about with many cool speakers on the Analyze Asia podcast, we can find a sense of collective community of how we can advance human society as a whole together. And thank you. You can definitely find us anywhere in any podcast platform. And definitely tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us in getting 
discovered very quickly. Alex, many thanks for coming on the show and I will look forward to continue the conversation with you. Thank you so much. 